Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke, glory to you, Lord Christ. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent his messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because he had set his face toward Jerusalem. And so his disciples, when they heard it, James and John said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to the next village. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. How is a disciple's life to be focused? How is a disciple's life to be focused? Focus, determined, set, resolved. In verse 51 of Luke chapter 9, if you'll turn there with me, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That phrase, set his face, means he was determined. It means he was stable, that he was resolved, that he was determined and focused, focused on Jerusalem. In our world, focus and resolve and determination seems rather rare. What is much more common is to be fickle, to be undisciplined, to be distracted, to be inconsistent. It's hard to find people that stick with their priorities. It's like the priest who wants to go fishing. He really wants to go fishing. And Monday, terrible fishing weather. Tuesday, terrible fishing weather. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, terrible fishing weather. You see where this is heading. Sunday morning, perfect fishing weather. And so this priest is stuck. He says, I've got responsibilities and priorities, but he decides to call in sick, drives out of town so no one will recognize him, and he goes fishing. And while he's fishing, he nabs a 50-pound northern pike. It's on his hook for an hour. It's a great colossal battle and struggle, and he's victorious, nets the northern pike, gets it in the boat, and rejoices. Now, an angel has been watching all of this and says to God, God, how could you allow this to happen? I mean, how is all of this going to teach this rebellious, undisciplined, skipping church priest anything? And God says... Because who's he going to tell? <laughs> we are so often unfocused, not determined, distracted. But a disciple's life is to be focused. When we look here in Luke chapter 9, we see that Jesus himself at this point turns his focus to Jerusalem. And that Jesus' focus, we'll see just in these 
few short verses, Jesus' focus is singular, absolutely clear and singular on one destination. There is no question from this point on in Luke's gospel where his focus lies, singular. But Jesus' focus is not just singular, it's also salvific. There's your crossword uh, word for the day, salvific, salvation-oriented. His focus is towards saving the world. His focus is not just single-minded and singular, but it is salvific. His whole focus is on our salvation, yours and mine. But not only is it singular and salvific, Jesus' focus, we see, is secure. Totally secure, undeterred, stable, secure, and not moving. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus bookends this story of where he sets his face to Jerusalem with two call stories, two sending stories. Chapter 9 begins with Jesus sending out the 12. And what does he say to them? He says, be focused. Focused on the mission. And what does he say in chapter 10 when he sends out the 72? Be focused. Focused on the mission. You see, Jesus' focus here, his singular, salvific, secure focus, is not just for us to stand back and say, wow, what an incredible focus Jesus had. It is an instruction and a promise for you and me as disciples that he will grant us by his Holy Spirit the same singular, salvific, and secure focus in our lives as his disciples. So let's start with Jesus' focus being singular, focused. Verse 51, we're told that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Again in verse 54, the same thing. He set his face toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem is his singular focus. Because what does Jerusalem hold for him? What's about to happen when he gets to Jerusalem? Luke uses the language in verse 51 of him being taken up. He says, when the time came for him to be taken up, which is literally the word ascension. Luke is saying, when the days drew near for his ascension, but for Luke, the ascension is understood as the crowning culmination of all those acts of salvation in Jerusalem. For Luke, the ascension of Jesus ascending into heaven and being seated at the right hand of the Father, this is the crowning culmination of his passion, his death, his resurrection, and now his glorious ascension. This is why Luke loves the ascension so much. Do you notice that Luke ends his gospel, chapter 24, with Jesus' ascension? And then his next book, Acts, have you ever wondered why he begins Acts? Chapter 1, with the ascension all over again. Didn't you cover that in the last book? Of course he did. For Luke, the ascension is everything. It's the culmination of salvation history. His death, his resurrection, and now his ascension into heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So when Luke is saying that the time came close for his ascension, he means Jesus knew at that point the day was near when he would win for us salvation at Jerusalem. So he fixed his eyes there, his sole focus. From this point on, 
Chapter 9, verse 51 is the turning point in Luke's gospel. He's got 10 more chapters of teaching and healing as he journeys, but you can see all the way through. His resolute, singular goal is to look to that salvation moment at Jerusalem. And just as a side note, the singularity of his focus is rooted in the singularity of his person. He's exclusively focused on this moment because he exclusively is the one that can win this moment. No one else, he and he alone, can win this salvation for us in Jerusalem. As 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 reads, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. What's interesting is for us as disciples to have that similar single-minded focus. That our focus as disciples, however we live that out, at home, at work, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, that behind all of the individual vocations God has given us, that our singular focus as disciples is to be that same point, the death and resurrection and ascension of the Son of God. Why do you think we celebrate communion every time we gather? The death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus put on display for the community again and again. When I was in Ottawa, there was a season where I trying to get healthy I decided to do some kickboxing. Um, I'll let you just imagine that for a moment. Um, and in that kickboxing environment, I got to know a professor uh, who was one of my uh, sparring partners. And he was a professor from Ottawa U. And it turned out he taught in biblical studies. But he was an atheist and taught in the biblical studies program as the Bible as literature and basically just ripped the Bible apart for the whole semester. You know, this is just a bunch of fictitious myths and ripped it all apart. And so after, you know, we'd spar and we'd talk about Bible as we're sparring and kickboxing. And eventually he said to me, he said, would you ever like to come into my class and maybe offer the other opinion? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> and the day came and I was walking across the Ottawa campus and I was thinking to myself, what am I possibly going to say? I mean, this is, a, this is a room of two, 300 students, highly secularized. They've had a whole semester of him just pounding them with this nonsense about how the Bible's got no authority. It's all myth. And, and so I went in saying, I, I only really have one thing, singular focus that I have to do. I have one job. And so I came into the classroom and I said, I'm a Christian, and I believe what the Bible says about Jesus. And I said, I want you to start by telling me all the reasons why you reject what I just said. And, and they, they filled the board. We filled the board with all these reasons why they reject biblical Christianity. And at the end of that, we were running out on time. And I said, you know, my, I'd love to sit with all of you and talk more about each one of these things are good questions. But I said, I really can only give you one answer. The answer that will ultimately beat out all of these oppositions. And I wrote on the board, John 3, 16, in front of 300 secular students. And I said, I know you know that from sporting events, but do you know what it means? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
to the end that all that believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. I said, what the Bible is saying is that God knows you to the depth of your sin and loves you to the heights of heaven. And that's why Jesus died for you. And the bell rang and the professor made some offhanded mocking comment about, you know, altar calls and the students left. And I thought, I guess I kind of blew it. Felt very inglorious. Professor and I chatted a bit and I walked out into the hallway and there was a line of students waiting for me, wanting to talk about what John 3.16 really meant. Singular. We know what the message is. A disciple's focus like Jesus is set towards Jerusalem, set towards this salvation moment. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I decided to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Singular focus in every vocation of our lives. But not only singular, Jesus' focus is salvific. It means salvation. His, his focus is to save. To save, not condemn. That's his focus. See, in verse 53, we see the response from the Samaritan village. Jesus goes in and they reject him. Why? Because verse 54 says, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. There was an ancient conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. It went back generations. They disagreed about worship. They disagreed about so much. They were close cousins, but so much disagreement. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that Samaritans often mistreated those who were going through their villages if they knew they were on their way to Jerusalem, even sometimes murdering them. And so this is now the first real test for Jesus' resolve, the first test for his focus, okay? He set his eyes on Jerusalem and immediate rejection. How is he going to respond? Well, we see how James and John respond. James and John in verse 54 uh, we're told, uh, say, Lord, uh, shall we tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, before you judge James and John too harshly, I mean, do go ahead and judge them harshly, but just recognize that they're trying to live into a biblical story. They think Jesus is Elijah. Because back in 2 Kings chapter 1, when Elijah was having a conflict with some folks from Samaria, conflict about false worship. The king of Samaria kept sending these captains with 50 men to Elijah. And when the captains of the 50 men arrived at Elijah, Elijah's response, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 10, Elijah answered the captain of the 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And again, the exact same thing in verse 12, fire from heaven. And so you could argue that James and John are just trying to be very biblical. See, the difficulty is that these sons of thunder, as Jesus elsewhere names them, James and John, they're adopting a worldview that says, push your agenda through with works of power and might and strength. They're saying the only way to achieve your mission is to destroy 
all those who are in your way. I mean, it's the way the world works, right? If you want to get anything done, if opposition arises, you destroy your opposition. And that's what James and John are living into. It's the way of the world. Since July 4th is coming this week, by the way, we are celebrating our big July 4th weekend this next Sunday, as that's the closest Sunday to July 4th of the flag and all of the celebrations. But as July 4th comes, I may as well reference the landmark blockbuster musical Hamilton, right? This story of the War of Independence. And in Hamilton, the musical, King George of England is seen as the real comic tyrant. Because what he puts on display is that he lives that worldly value that says might is right. You get your agenda done by overcoming and destroying your enemies. He sings to America, you'll be back like before. I will fight the fight and win the war for your love, for your praise, and I'll love you till my dying days. When you're gone, I'll go mad, so don't throw away this thing we had, cause when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and families to remind you of my love. (laughs) That's the way we see agendas being promoted in the world. That's how we handle rejection and opposition in the world. Jesus in verse 50 instead turns to James and John and it says, rebuked them. It's a strong word. In Luke's gospel, Jesus rebukes demons and diseases, and sea storms, and now two disciples who want to obliterate the opposition. He rebukes them because this is not the way that Jesus is journeying. Earlier manuscripts, if you're reading your King James Bible, you'll notice that early manuscripts included an additional phrase here. That earlier manuscripts or some early manuscripts included an extra phrase from Jesus after he rebukes them. If you're reading the King James Version, you'd read this. He would go on to say to James and John, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. In other words, you don't know what spirit's behind your desire. In other words, it's demonic and the rebuke therefore is an exorcism of sorts. But then he goes on to say, for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. It it sounds just like John 3.17. We know John 3.16. Do we know John 3.17? For God did not send his son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus' focus is always salvific. His focus is always in order to save, not condemn, not destroy, to rescue And as he looks towards Jerusalem, the disciples will find when they get there that the king comes not to spill his enemy's blood, but to spill his own blood for his enemies. This is how we are 
to focus our mission towards salvation. It's not enough that it's a singular focus. It's the cross and the resurrection. But what's the tone and the approach? Is it condemnation, repent or burn on billboards? Or is it salvation to win and to rescue and to woo? When we look at those who reject Christianity, do we see a person for whom Jesus died? But see, Jesus' focus is not just singular and it's not just salvific. It's totally secure. Jesus' focus is secure and immovable and undeterred. See, verse 56, it's a short little verse, but it's amazing. It says, and he went on to the next village. And they went on to the next village. It's simple but profound. Following rejection, we do not hear that Jesus was anxious and fearful and frustrated. But instead, in total security, he simply moved on to the next village. Do you hear the security in that? He knows that the mission is right. Even facing opposition, he knows what he's doing is right. He knows he's living into this. Why does he know it? Because he trusts the one who gave him the mission. He trusts his father. Jesus, we see again and again, trusts his father who has sent him into mission. In John chapter 12, Jesus describes this mission that the father has given him. That it's the father who sends him. Jesus says in John 12, verse 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus received his mission from his Father, and he trusts his Father. Do you hear that? That even in the face of rejection, Jesus doesn't trust his mission based on the circumstances of how well the mission's going. Oh, things are going well. The mission must be good. Things are going badly. Maybe we have the wrong mission. Maybe I have the wrong focus. No, Jesus is secure in his focus because he trusts the Father who gave him the mission. Do you trust the Father? Do you and I trust the Father? As Romans 8.31 says, what can we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not give us everything else? See, we are going to face opposition. Will we become anxious and fearful and frustrated, or we will simply move on to the next town. That's what he tells the disciples both in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 when he sends out the 12 and the 72. He says, if they don't receive you, just dust your feet off. Move on to the next town. There is an incredible security in that focus and resolve, a steadiness. We are going to face opposition. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says, but fear not, I have overcome the world. You will face opposition as you set your face as a disciple towards Jerusalem, as you set your face towards 
proclaiming in word and deed the death and resurrection and ascension of the Son of God for the salvation of the whole world. In your work, in your home, in your school, in your neighborhood, you will face opposition. But that doesn't change the security of our resolve. It does not change the security of our focus. Russell Moore, who spoke at our Anglican assembly just a couple weeks ago, tells the story of being on a talk show. And the talk show was specifically about and for listeners living alternative lifestyles sexually. And the host, before they started the show, uh, said to Russell Moore, uh, she said, I hope you're not offended, but my listeners really are not going to like what you're going to have to say. Because to be honest, we, in this particular alternative lifestyle community, we think what you Christians believe about sexuality and marriage is really strange. And, and Russell Moore said, well, I'm not offended at all. You see, what we believe as Christians actually is stranger still. We believe that a man 2,000 years ago died, rose again, and will one day appear in the clouds on a horse. Stranger indeed. But secure. Secure in the face of opposition. Secure with the message. Secure because we trust the Father who gave us this message this focus, this salvation for the world? Do you believe that you are secure in the mission and focus that God has given you? Do you believe that God has displayed, the Father has displayed for you and for me in the death of his son for us just how trustworthy he is? Do you believe that even when you face oppositions, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be able to have a secure focus on Jerusalem, on the death and resurrection and ascension of God? As Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How is a disciple's life to be focused. Where are we to set our face? How are we to set our face? Jesus' focus is singular and it's salvific and it's secure. And for you and I as disciples, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit poured out into our lives, he has made us more and more to be like him so that our focus is to be singular. In every vocation, every occupation, everything we do, we have a singular focus to declare in word and deed the death and resurrection and ascension of the Son of God for the sake of the world. We, though, as we go out with the singular focus, like him, must have a salvific focus 
It's not about condemnation. That is so easy. It is instead about seeking to save, rescue. The tone and the intention matters. And finally, he is making us by his spirit to know the security of this focus. The Father has sent you through the Son. And the Father is trustworthy. He knew what he was doing when he sent you. Thankfully, Anglicans are not named after our premier theologians. The Lutherans are named after Martin Luther. The Calvinists are named after John Calvin. Our premier theologian of the Reformation was a man named Richard Hooker. Here's what Hooker writes as I close. This is why I can never get a tattoo because it would have to be this long. Hooker says, this is the disciples' focus. This is where we set our eyes, our face. He says, let it be accounted folly or frenzy or fury or whatsoever. It is our wisdom and our comfort. We care for no knowledge in the world but this. That man hath sinned and God hath suffered. That God has made himself the sin of man. And that men are made the righteousness of God. It is to this that we set our faces. By the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, this is and will be your focus as a disciple. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.